how does an actor become Othello? Well, if you're Deborah Ann Bird, you start with a physical transformation. Now I change my hair from long and flowing to a short, curly afro. I remember the days when I outdid the boys in gym class. I'd watch men and get a refresher on how they move, how they sit, how they speak, how they handle women. Flirt and how they behave. No perfume, no makeup, <laughs> no earrings, except for Othello's little gold from the Fulcher Shakespeare Library, this is Shakespeare Unlimited. I'm Michael Whitmore, the Fulcher's director. Deborah Ann Bird is the founder of the Harlem Shakespeare Festival and producing artistic director of Southwest Shakespeare Company. But she got her start in theater as a classically trained actor. Now she's stepping out from her work behind the scenes and returning to the stage. In her one-woman show, Becoming Othello, A Black Girl's Journey, Deborah Ann recounts her experience discovering herself while playing Shakespeare's tragic hero. She has tackled the role of Othello in three different productions, first in a staged reading in 2013, then again in 2015 and 2019. Each time, she learned a little bit more about Othello and about herself. As Deborah Ann explains in the show, these discoveries led her to write about her experience as an actor of color through the lens of playing Othello. Her autobiographical show, Becoming Othello, was first developed as a writer-in-residence at the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust and as an artistic research fellow at the Folger. The show reaches back to her childhood in Spanish Harlem, her alcoholic mother's tragic death, and her own struggles with depression. She also tells the story of how she was inspired to start the Harlem Shakespeare Festival after seeing how few opportunities there were for actors of color to work in classical theater. Becoming Othello is currently running at Seattle Shakespeare Company. Here's Deborah Ann Bird in conversation with Barbara Bogave. If you could, I'd like you to take us back to the very beginnings of your whole Othello trip and your very first dream of playing the role that you have done so much with. And you've, Wow. Yeah, right? You've said it goes way back to when you were a senior in college, but maybe even further. Yes, know. absolutely, it does. I was a senior in college, and I was in my final semester at Marymount, and Professor Elizabeth Swain, she took the entire class to a special taping of John Barton's playing Shakespeare. And Barton was coaching uh, celebrity after celebrity. And then onto the stage came um, Charles Dutton. Oh, I love him. Yes, he was on that television show called Rock. He's done a lot of August Wilson plays as well. He's an actor of the stage and the television and film. He was on the stage, and then he walked back and forth upstage, and we all just watching him closely. And he began his monologue. And as he was speaking it, it is the cause. It is the cause, my soul. Let me not name it to you, you chaste stars. It is the cause. Yet I'll not shed her blood, nor scar that whiter skin, 
hers than snow and smooth as monumental alabaster. Yet she must die, else she'll betray more men. Oh my goodness, I was, I was uh, enraptured. I was like, oh my God, he is brilliant. He was so brilliant that at the end, John Barton had no notes for him. He was kind of just stuck. (laughs) (laughs) He had notes for everyone else. But after I saw Charles Dutton and the way he spoke those words and his emotion, his feeling, um, the integrity that he brought to the role, the, the... vulnerability, everything. It was just so brilliant that I said, oh my God, I want to play that role like that. I want to say those words like that. And if I can, then perhaps I can say, Debran, you're a brilliant actor. (laughs) And so I set out to one day play Othello, and then it finally came. Wow. Okay. So you're hellbent on Othello. <laughs> and then you flash forward 13 years. And you 13 years. and Lisa Volpe went to see Tina Packer in Women of Will. And yes. what happened? Lisa, she was visiting me in New York because we were thinking about what it is that we were going to do for the Harlem Shakespeare Festival because it was our first season. And Lisa said that she would direct something for me. And so we went downtown to see Tina Packer in Women of Will with Nigel Gore. And they started performing the scene, Othello, Act 5, Scene 2. And I said, oh, my God, that's that role I want to play. That's the role I want to play. And so when the show was over, I said, hey, Lisa, you have any Iago in you? And Lisa said, yeah, you have some Othello. And I was like, uh, mm, I, I think so. I, I, I think so. And right then and there, we decided we were going to produce an all-female, multiracial uh, stage reading of Othello, The Moor of Venice. And it was beautiful. We cast 15 other women. And then um, after talking to Lisa for a while and trying to understand what my Othello was or what it might be, she said, am I a man or a woman, Othello? And she says, Deborah Ann, this is a man's story. And so I had to figure out, okay, so how am I going to play this man? How am I going to perform this man? How am I going to embody this man? So trying to figure out what I was going to do with this man was, was going to be really interesting to me. And you know, taking workshops and classes and, and even rehearsals with Lisa. I You know, she teaches us how, you know, how to move, how to sit. How, how do to you walk. sit and um, move? Well, you know, I, I, I move wider. You know, you're larger. You take up space. <laughs> you you know, manspread. You, you take, up more, take up more space. Manspread, of course, with the legs. Drop the voice an octave or two. Begin to speak that way all day, every day, all the time. All the time. I changed my hair. Did you do a method, like a method acting? Uh, Absolutely, I did. I went to the grocery store. I asked for my, um, can you please give me a pound of salami? (laughs) I dropped my voice and I spoke everybody. Everybody, everything, my children, my dentist, doesn't matter. I was speaking low. What kind of reactions did you get? Well, you know, um, <laughs> at first, at first, folks were saying, what the hell is wrong with her? You know, <laughs> but at the same time, what I didn't want to do is hit the stage and my femininity uh, came flying out mm. because I was thinking, you know, Othello's a leader, a general, a warrior, a man's man. I didn't want to, you know, a set piece falling down and I'm uh, squeaking like a girl. Ah! 
not. No. Um, I needed to, you know, so no matter what happened around me, in no matter what situation, no matter who said what to me, if I practice uh, speaking in this such a low tone, then perhaps when I hit the stage, it wouldn't change. And it didn't. That's so interesting. So you, you're internalizing in this method acting way, m- taking up space as a man. Well, what about your look? Did you have a model? For- oh, my look. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I had a little model. Of course, I had a little model. Because because I was like, what the hell am I going to look like as a man? And um, then I thought about my son, Joshua. You know, he had a cute short, curly afro, and he had um, the sideburns and a neatly trimmed goatee. And I said, yes, that's it. That's my look. I'm curious what you think gender switch productions do for the audience. What do you what do you notice in their response when you're on on stage? And and I've talked about this with uh, the director Felita Lloyd, who did uh, the, the trilogy of of all female Shakespeare plays set in a prison. Yes, and and she yes. talked about how it takes the audience out of themselves. It's like a distancing effect on one level and in a good way. You are just open to seeing the play in a different way. You're jolted into seeing seeing new things. Yes, that's that's absolutely true. I mean, when I look at um, the uh, gender swaps that happen in the UK or when they first started happening, the females would not necessarily turn to males, but they would play the male roles. But in America, the females would totally swap and put on pants and become men. But what I notice with the audiences is that um, it takes them just a moment. At first, they're like, oh, what is this? And then they're like, they for- totally forget hmm. that those are females there. And this is what these is what responses that I got from the audiences. They would say, oh, my goodness, I, I totally forgot. Um, that." They-. And then sometimes when they hear certain lines that are supposed to be coming from a male but are coming from a, a female body in a male suit, um, it, they said that they, they, they sound different. They heard the lines different. They heard the lines better. Even now, when I'm on stage doing Becoming Othello and I begin to shift and I start turning into Othello, the audience begins to perk up and sit up and really pay close attention to watch the transformation happen before their eyes. Because all of a sudden, I come up out of my dress that I have on and I talk about being a youth and I outdid the boys and I wrestle out of my dress and the next thing you know, I'm I'm there bare. I'm not naked, of course. I have on full blacks. But it's really interesting how the audience begins to say, okay, what's happening here? Shapeshifting. And, um, yeah, I begin shapeshifting on stage. And it's really interesting um, to feel the audience because I can feel them. And then they're with me. They're with me the whole time after that. It's so funny because I was going to ask you at what point did you think, oh, this whole story could be a one-woman show. But as you tell the story of it, it seems inevitable that this would be this would be your yeah, work of I mean, art. At, well, at first I was thinking, I've always wanted to write a memoir from the time I was a younger person. But I kept thinking, no one really wants to hear a memoir from a young person. What the hell is that? But I had had lived so much life. 
Before then, I was in foster care. I was a teenage mother. I had left my mama's house. I, I'd left grandma. It was, I've had a, a really a really interesting time by the time I was still a young person. But then as, as I was getting older and, and, and I was thinking about all these experiences I was having while becoming Othello, I just kept saying, I want to write about this. And I thought it was a memoir. And then I said, wait a minute, girl. You know, ever since you watched Whoopi and, and uh, John Leguizamo, you keep saying you want to do a solo show. And then I said, you know what? Maybe this is my solo show. Um, maybe I talk about my life journey to becoming Othello. Maybe I talk about being a classically trained actor of color. Maybe I talk about my role of Othello and, and, and why I chose him and how I played him and do a little bit of that. And then I said, well, then if that's going to be the case, Bird, then who's going to help you with that? And I thought about it and prayed about it. And 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 uh, to my mind's eye came Paul Edmondson. And uh, he is the head of research at the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust. So that's how you got to be a writer in residence at the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust in Stratford. Absolutely. England. And that's when you really got fired up, right, about the idea for becoming Othello. And apparently it had something to do with you getting your results from DNA testing. What was interesting is, um, first, I was um, thinking about calling Paul, and I didn't call him, but then I was at a conference. And so I saw Paul, and I said, Paul, I I have this idea. I want to write Becoming Othello, A Black Girl's Journey. And I began to tell him about it a little bit. And I told him that I really needed his help. And so he went back to Stratford, and um, he said, I couldn't wait. I talked to the powers that be, and they said that they want you to come and be writer in residence. When can you come? And I'm like, uh, now. So when I got there, I had, uh, prior to that, I had taken DNA tests from Ancestry. So while I was there, like two days, the, my results came. And so I said, hey, Paul, my results came. And I said, they are this, 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 and that. And so we were scheduled to do about nine interviews. And those nine interviews was supposed to help me to begin to get material or ideas for what it is I was going to write about. So in one of the interviews, we did a breakdown of what my DNA results were. And he said, you know what? Why is that interesting to you? And and I began to break it down and explain to him that, you know, I've always felt like I was many things. I know that my dad's from Puerto Rico and my mom is family is from Georgia and my last name is Irish. And so I'm wondering, what am I? And um, at that time, it said something about 2% English. And Paul, this is Paul Edmondson and Paul Prescott. They said, welcome, dear. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was quite silly and quite funny. But then I decided that I would um, figure out a way to add it to the play. Well, I'm um, I'm flashing now on the on the beginning of your play, and in the first act, mm-hmm. you you run through this lightning fast history of of slavery and the many free blacks living and working near the Globe Theater during Shakespeare's lifetime. And Absolutely, the black tutors. The black tutors, and that he might easily mm-hmm. have met and worked with and known. Mm-hmm. And it it literally mm-hmm. grounds the whole intersection of your story and Othello and Shakespeare. There was a silk weaver living in Suffolk, close to the Globe and the Rose Theatres. Silk weaving was a new trade. Philip Henslow in his diary lists 274 silk items in the actor's inventory at the Rose. Did the silk weaver reasonable black men supply that silk? Tis true, there's magic in the web of it. Mary Phyllis, 
was one of three Blackamoors living in the Barker household in the parish of St. Olive on Hart Street. She became a seamstress. Did she make clothes for Shakespeare when he lived round those corner on Silver Street for those seven years? Then there was John Anthony, a sailor. Catalina, a woman who lived independently in Almondsbury, and a salvage diver called Jack Wes Francis. How do you track down those residents? Well, we were just looking at some of the history to see what we found. And so I started talking about the Black Tudors in the play. And then as I knew that there needed to be respect for ancestors, I said, well, you know what? Ancestors like you to say their names. And so I began to look in the history to see if I could find names of people. To honor them. Yeah. And they live on. Yes. I wanted wanted to honor them. Yes. So you have this lecture and uh, then... There's a there's some of your background. There's this history, and then there's a lot of Shakespeare, and and you slip in and out a of lot. some great monologues. For instance, Othello's account of winning over Desdemona's father. Her father loved me. Oft he invited me, still questioned me the story of my life from year to year, the battles, sieges, fortune that I had passed. I ran it through even from my boyish days till the very moment that he bade me tell it, wherein I spake of most disastrous chances, of moving accidents by flood and field, of hairbreadth scapes in the intimate deadly breach, of being taken by the insolent foe and sold to slavery, of my redemption thence, and portents in my traveler's history, wherein of Antal's vast and desert idol, rough quarries, rocks, hills, whose head such heaven. How did you think yes. about how to integrate the monologues into the play? Well, some of it came, um, some of it came naturally as I was thinking. I knew that I needed to have some Shakespeare. I needed it not to be boring, so I needed to have some <laughs> song. <laughs> you know, it's boring when you're just plain talking. So I knew I wanted to have some music and some song and some poetry, and 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 it had to have a lot of Shakespeare. And so by the time I finished writing it, it had over. 200 lines of Shakespeare. I went naturally to all of those monologues and scenes that I had worked on at Marymount Manhattan College. And so I knew that the the Shakespeare that I had learned would be, had become such a part of my body because, you know, like the like my mentors and the people who I really love actors, I like to go all in. So those words, they still live in my body. So as I'm writing, the, these things just come out. Like I started saying, oh, God, I'm tired. I'm tired. I'm tired with a hey ho. Oh, the wind and the rain and the rain, it raineth every day. How am I supposed to be okay? And, and you know, so it just was so interesting to me that that just came naturally because I started thinking about tears. I was crying. I started thinking about tears and, 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 and the rain. And, and all of a sudden, hey, ho, the wind and the rain came out. And, um, and, and it flowed and it worked. <laughs> now, there were other parts that I hadn't added that I didn't really know about, and that's why I left that up to Tina Packer to help me with that because she's the brilliant Shakespearean. And so when my mom dies, Tina said, well, th- maybe you can add Richard II. Mount, mount my soul, thy seat is up on high, whilst my gross flesh sinks downward here to die. And I said, wow, okay. It's like weaving. It hits you. Yeah. 
I was absolutely just weaving the Shakespeare in, except when I intentionally did some Shakespeare, some Othello monologues when I start becoming Othello, because I knew there might be a lot of audience members who might not even know what the play is. Well, it's a, it's a really emotional journey, and, and you start laying it out pretty much right near the beginning of, of your show, your story, and you get into a there's a point where you get into a conversation with God about why he had to go and give you a daughter with cerebral palsy. Um, yes, yes. Martha, you know, she was a preemie and she was she came out 28 weeks. And then next thing you know, she's diagnosed with cerebral palsy. Uh, she was in the hospital before that. She was in the hospital for three months in the ICU. And by the time in my life, it was around the 96 or so, you know, Martha had been diagnosed with a terminal illness and I was just exhausted. And I, you know, after, you know, four years of taking care of her and going back and forth to the hospital, I decided I needed to lay down. And so I did. I laid down. And um, by the time I, you know, got up, a friend called me and said, Deborah Ann, just because your daughter's dying does not mean you have to die too. You know, and, and so I began to get up from there and I said, God, you know, this is not right. This is not fair. My life is shit. Um, <laughs> and I started to have what I call an argument with God about about Martha and why was she even born? Um, and why am I here on this planet? Um, and so I began to hear God talk back to me and said, if Martha was never born, you'd be dead by now. Do you remember you were standing out the window about to jump out? What did you say? I said, I can't take it anymore, but if I jump, who's going to take care of Martha? And that time that you were standing on the rooftop, what did you say? If I die, who's going to take care of Martha? And that's only two times that Martha saved your life. Now, do you really want to lay there and die? I didn't send that frail little angel there to save you so you can give up now. And then I lose it. Yes, God, <laughs> but life is an unrelenting hardship and I'm tired. Damn it, I am tired. That moment in the play happens at the beginning because it is the pivotal moment where you get and you understand that I had laid down to die. And as I began to talk to God about what was going on in my life, that's when I really thought about it. I really love the theater and all of my gifts and my abilities and my talents and my tragedies and my good times, they all fit there in the theater and maybe I can try that Shakespeare thing, but I know I can't just try it. I got to go to school. But hell, what school? I'm damn near 30 years old. And of course, I, I say as fate would have it, a few days later, I'm on the bus, and on the bus is an advertisement that reads, Marymount Manhattan College at the Center of Excellence. And my deal with God was, if I get up from here, he has to help me and that I have to be excellent. Not just good, but excellent. Otherwise, I could just lay there and watch the time roll by till the day of my demise. Were you already a Shakespeare fan or even a theater fan? Because you do say often in the play you thought about becoming a preacher and and that yes, growing yes. up you had, I mean, you just had, as you said before, a lot. before you were 21, <laughs> yeah, you lived many lives or, or a lot of trauma um, in Spanish Harlem. Growing up with your mm -hmm. your mom who drank, mm -hmm. um, and grandma and everybody in the same house. Yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah. So, so what was what was when did when did the shift to becoming a theater kid happen? 
Well, I was at church and I was, of course, studying to be a, a reverend. I was on the choir and they were doing their Black History event and somehow they lost their Harriet Tubman and asked me to fill in. <laughs> and I was, um, no, I'm sorry. I'm, I have my studies to do. I'm uh, trying to figure that out. And and then they kept bugging me and I said, okay, let me just go ahead and do it. And next thing I know, I'm a little old lady from the South and 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 I was pretty good. <laughs> and I was like, wait a I minute, guess. this is interesting. <laughs> this is interesting. And then the next year they do another show and one of the preacher's wives said, Deborah Ann, you're pretty good at that. You should try to become a professional actor. Nope, nope, I'm sorry, I got my studies to do. I'm studying to be a preacher. And then another friend, Deborah Ann, there's a workshop. It's with Evangelist Mamie Perfect. And I didn't really want to go into show business, but I thought that I could go to the workshop with Mamie Perfect because she was an evangelist. I felt that was safe. And so I went to this workshop and she cast me as the lead. And next thing I know, I'm in I'm in black theater and gospel theater and doing these shows for seven, eight years. And then uh, a friend invites me to see a troupe of black actors performing Shakespeare at the Harlem Victoria Five Theater. Uh, George Wolfe from the public theater had sent down a troupe of actors to to Harlem and I was there and I was watching and it was very interesting and 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 this this woman she was just going on and on and I said wait a minute this is uh, this is different from what I know I'm I'm intrigued and challenged and chanted and very curious that stage is alive it's queen elizabeth from richard the 3rd my tongue should to thine ears not name my boys so that my nails were anchored in thine eyes and I was like woo and I was <laughs> <laughs> I was I was very excited and, and and one of my mentors said, Deborah Ann, if I see you on stage in another play where you're the best thing, I'm going to kick your butt. You need to go somewhere and learn, get a challenge and get something that's going to challenge you and something that's going to help you grow and get with other actors. And I was like, what are you talking about? And then when I saw that, I said, that's it. That Shakespeare stuff is intriguing and challenging, and I don't know if I can do it, but I'd surely like to try. So when I was going through my time uh, of depression and sadness and in the bed and fighting with God, I realized that it, I, I need to be in the theater and I needed to learn some Shakespeare. And so that's why I went to college. Yeah, and then and you went to study Shakespeare. And, and then I you did. say when you got to your senior class showcase— People mm. told you not to do Shakespeare, the very reason yes. that you were there, to do August yes. Wilson instead. So tell, tell me about that. Who told you that? And, and how did you <laughs> react? And what, what, I mean, I have my own thoughts about what that message is that they're sending, but I want to know what you, you thought. Well, was. It, it was it was it was really challenging, to say the least. One, first, there was a, a, a bona fide casting director and she wanted to know who was in the main stage production. And they were doing Oscar Wilde's The Importance of Being Earnest. And I had been cast as Lady Bracknell. And when she asked everyone to raise their hand of who was in that production because she wanted to see, she ignored me every time I raised my hand. And I'm like, wait a minute, I'm in that play. You don't hear me? And, you know, and she said, well, Deborah Ann, how old are you? And and she was saying, well, oh, do you really trying to do the classics, you know? And and already I'm starting to feel some kind of way. And then she says, so well, Professor— So you mean, like, you're too uh, old and you're black? Is that what you were I'm hearing? I'm too old and I'm black. Yeah. Yes. And I was like, what? Okay, so now um, she says the professor is going to help us with our scenes and monologues. And so the professor pulled me aside and said, Deborah Ann, you know— 
I don't think you should do any classical work for your showcase. With your facility for language, you should try your hand at August Wilson. Are you going to do a song? Oh, my God. Oh, that broke my heart. All of that broke my heart. And I, I just started, I went to my seat and I started crying. And so I just said, I got to get out of here. I, I ran out of that classroom, tears running down my face, not knowing what to do. I jumped on the elevator and started to head upstairs, hoping that Professor Swain was in her office. I went to that office. I bust in there crying, Professor Swain, I'm leaving the theater. And I just was, I just lost it. And, and she said, well, what are you going to do? Well, I'm just going to be in communications or something. I'm going to, and she says, Deborah Ann. No matter what you choose, there are going to be problems in the world. You're an actor and a damn good one. Dry your face. Go back to class. And um, I went back to my acting class. And, of course, I did do August Wilson monologue. And no one called me from no agent, no casting director. <laughs> and, and I was just pissed. And other students had come to me, um, people of color, Deborah Ann, why is it that we don't get cast in the plays? What's going on? And I started thinking about all of this. And I said, you know what? Something needs to shift. And then there was a, a grant for a woman who had went back to college and grad and was about to graduate. And they asked, what are you going to do with yourself? And what are you going to do in your community? And I said, well, what I'm going to do in my community is I'm going to go back to my community. I'm going to get some women who join me as board members, and I'm going to start a professional theater company, Take Wing and Soar Productions. It is to be a theatrical safe space where artists of color can hone their skills and build their confidence by building their resumes. We set out to change the face of American classical theater. Which eventually led you to the Harlem Shakespeare Festival, founding Which that. eventually, 10 years later, I founded the Harlem Shakespeare Festival. Um, and I think, I really, truly believe we've made a difference. Yeah. I mean, I could keep you here all, all day and night talking about all the, <laughs> all the hats you wear. But I just, as, as a last uh, question, I do want to ask you, the, just given your experience acting and, and producing and, and managing and running the, the Harlem Shakespeare Festival and now the Southwest Shakespeare, what do you think has changed for actors of color over the past decade or, or so? It's better. That's what I want to say. There has been a change. Um, I think the biggest change has been um, in leadership, when I first became a member of the Shakespeare Theater Association, there were two companies in America who were run by people of color doing Shakespeare. Now there are 12, 13, 15 people of color at the Shakespeare Theater Association, which is a conference for the leaders of producers and educators and managing directors and board members who are in charge of creating opportunities for people in, in Shakespeare. Of course, when the George Floyd thing happened and the Black Lives Matter thing happened, then everyone started to shift. Um, there was a slow shift happening prior to that, but then I look at and I see Detroit Shakespeare and um, 
these and then of course the even classical theater of Harlem began to be run by a person of color because it wasn't like that before. So it's just really interesting to see more opportunities for artists of color. The public theater always um, had mixy mixy casts. Uh, I call it mixy mixy when when the races are mixed. Oregon Shakespeare always had mixed casts. There were few opportunities um, even in Canada at Stratford for artists of color, but now I see more opportunities on the stage, behind the stage, making the big decisions. All of that has shifted since I started 20 years ago when I started uh, Take Wing and Soar. I did hear, though, when you started to answer this question that you got a little quiet and you said, it's better, but it's not good enough, is what it felt like (laughs) anywhere near. And I'm thinking, you mentioned uh, the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, and there's been this big fracas with Nataki Garrett there. A person of color leading that organization seems to have really run up against... Yeah, absolutely. And that's part of my hesitation, is that as I see the artists of color come into um, positions that are not just on the stage, but behind the stage and become the decision makers, sometimes people don't like that. Some folks don't like the sharing of power or to feel like someone's taking over something that belongs to them. And so... You know, it is it is still sad and frustrating to see that there are folks on the planet who who still have problems with people of color. So one of the reasons for making Becoming Othello is to help to shift that, help people to see it firsthand. What happens when you disturb the life flow of an individual, particularly a person of color, when they're on their correct trajectory and correct path and you try to throw roadblocks in the way, what happens to that person? And by the time I finish the story, I'm asking us to come together. What if we can put away that which separates us and lay hold to that which unites? Imagine for a moment what we all might be able to do in this world. And so as I as I hope we continue to go and grow, my hope is that we can go and grow together. Deborah Ann Bird's one-woman show, Becoming Othello, A Black Girl's Journey, is now running at Seattle Shakespeare Company through January 29, 2023. For tickets and more information, visit seattleshakespeare.org. This episode was produced by Matt Frassica. Garland Scott is the associate producer. It was edited by Gail Kern-Pastor. Ben Lauer is the web producer with help from Leonor Fernandez. We had technical help from John Baroker at Here by Sound in Seattle and Jenna McClellan at Voice Tracks West in Studio City, California. Final mixing services provided by Clean Cuts at Three Seas Inc. If you're a fan of Shakespeare Unlimited, don't forget to subscribe on your podcast platform of choice so you never miss an episode. And please leave a review so that others can find the show. Shakespeare Unlimited comes to you from the Folger Shakespeare Library. Home to the world's largest Shakespeare collection, the Folger is dedicated to advancing knowledge in the arts. You can find more about the Folger at our website, folger.edu. Thanks for listening. 
For the Folger Shakespeare Library, I'm Folger Director Michael Whitmore. 